All right, so welcome to a new year of weekly Torah portion classes. We are starting now with Bereshis. Yesterday was Simchas Torah, and in shuls all over the world, Jewish people finished reading the end of the five books of Moses, the end of Chumash, and started over again with the first Torah reading with, uh, with Bereshis. So here we are, Bereshis. Okay. So uh, let me see if I say this right. They say there are three kinds of people in this world. Those who know how to count and those who don't. <laughs> so <laughs> I want to talk about two kinds of people, two personality types that uh, we find within ourselves and which are described in this week's Torah portion when we read the genealogies of the very first generations of humankind. <coughs> Specifically, I want to talk about the genealogies <coughs> of two of the sons of Adam and Eve. Let's just review a little bit the general genealogy. You have Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve. They at first have two sons, Cain and Hevel, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Hevel, so Hevel has no progeny, he has no descendants. And uh, Cain then is banished, he's sent to wander. And much later, not right away, Adam and Chava have a third son, Shase, and he has a lineage that's descended from him. Now what we find is that in the lineage of both Cain and Shase, they both have descendants named Chanoich. Cain has a son named Chanoich, and Shays has a great, great, great grandson, three greats, named Chanaich. Right? Because it's Shays and then Enish, Canaan, Mahalalel, Yered, and Chanaich. So that's great, 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 three greats, grandson. Now, a name, especially a Hebrew name, we know, is significant. The name describes the essence of the person who carries that name. And what's interesting is that Cain and Chase. <coughs> yes, by the way, that is my name. My name is Chase. This, that is the same name. Yeah. In case you're wondering, is he talking about that? Is that his? Yes, that's my name. Okay. Cain and Chase are opposites. Absolute opposites. Cain is instability, and Chase is stability. How is Kain instability? What's Chase in Hebrew? Chet. Chase. Shin. Sof. Kain is a destroyer. He's the world's first murderer. So he is instability. 
Then, as a punishment, he was set to go wander. So he causes instability, his life is, in, uh, is unstable, that's Cain. Shesh is the exact opposite. Shesh, first of all, etymologically, that name is also related to the phrase, Mimenu Hushtas Ho'elam. From him, the world was established. Because after the murder of Hevel at the hands of Cain, humankind was repopulated through the lineage of Shes. Everyone is descended from Shes. So Mimenu, from him, Hushtas Ha'ilam, the world was established, was reestablished. In fact, it's related to another word you might know, Evan Hashasiya, the foundation stone. There's a foundation stone that's in the Makam Mikdash, in the site of the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem, which is the sort of the um, foundation of the entire world. The world was built or unfolded, as it were, from that foundation stone. So it has that same root there, which means foundation. So the name Shes means foundation. He is a foundation, a foundation of stability. From him, the world was reestablished. Humankind was, 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 was restabilized. So you have Cain, whose instability is Shes, stability. And they both have a descendant named Chanaich. They both have a descendant with the same name. Now, to make it even more confusing, not only do these two opposites both have descendants with the identical name, but they have the opposite Chanaich than what you would think they would have, because Shesus Chanech you would think would be Kain's, and Kain's Chanech you would think would be Shesus. What do I mean? If you look at who was Chanech, the descendant of Kain, what does it tell us? It says, Bereshus, Perek chapter 4, Pasig Yud Zayin, verse 17, V'yedah Kainus Ishtai, Kain knew his wife, V'taher V'teled, she conceived and she gave birth as Chanoich to Chanoich. And he built a city. Cain built a city. And he named the city after his son Chanoich. Cain, the destabilizer, the destroyer, is all of a sudden a city builder, a civilizer. And he names his son after the city that he's building. So, Cain represents instability, but his son, Chanoich, represents stability. Now go look, Shays, who represents stability, he has a descendant, Chanoich, who, what do you think he's going to represent? Instability. How so? So you go look a little bit later, Perikhei, chapter 5, Pasuk Chof Dalid, verse 24, and it tells us, Chanoich walked with God, he was a holy man, and he was no more. Because God took him away. What's this story? What happened here? First of all, you should know he was a very young man when this happened. He was only 365 years old, which at that time was considered young. That was a young whippersnapper. What happened? Rashi tells us, this Chanaich, the descendant of Shays, he was a holy guy, but he was, uh, he was wishy-washy. 
and, then, and you know what people were like prior to the flood. So as holy as he was, he was impressionable, and he would have gone rotten like everybody else. So God just plucked him out of the world. He just took him away. In fact, he entered Gan Eden. The Medrash says he's one of the few who entered Gan Eden and entered paradise while still alive with his body. But the point is, you can't get more unstable than that. He just disappeared from the world. He flies off to heaven. Talk about being flighty. He just left the world. He went up to paradise. So you have Cain who represents instability, and he has a son, Chanaich. You have Shays who represents stability. He has a son, Chanaich. And not only are they opposites, Shays and, and, and Cain opposites, and they both have descendants in Chanaich, but they have the opposite Chanaichs from what you would think they would have, because Cain's Chanaich represents stability, city building, and Shays' Chanaich represents he can't even tolerate the world. He disappears from the world. He takes flight. Okay. So to understand all of this, I want to tell you a story about a 10-year-old boy on Simchas Torah. We just had Simchas Torah yesterday. Not here in America, um, and not in this era, not in this time, but uh, in Moscow in the 1930s. It's about a 10-year-old boy on Simchas Torah in Moscow in the 1930s. But before I can tell you that story, I have to give you a little background. The background is like this. There was a chassid, a Chabad chassid, in Russia named Rabyena Kagan, which was russified from Koyhein. He was a Koyhein. Um, but they called him Yena Poltaver because he was from the Ukrainian town, Poltava. Who was this Rebyena? So I'm just going to paint a little picture of him. 1930s Russia. Okay, we're talking about Stalin's Russia. We're talking about state-sponsored terrorism against Judaism. And in the big city of Moscow, they allowed there to be a couple of shuls to run, you know, for appearance's sake, because officially the communists weren't anti-religion, right? So this Rabyena, he used to walk all the way across Moscow a couple of hours every Shabbos to go to the shul where there was the mikveh, and he would toivo, he'd immerse in the mikveh. Then he would walk all the way back across the city of Moscow a couple of hours <coughs> and daven at the shul where he would daven. And out of respect for him, they would always wait to not start Kriya Satoida. They wouldn't start the Torah reading until he would come in. You have to understand. First of all, just talking about somebody walking a couple hours to a mikveh so he can walk a couple hours back to a shul, that itself, you would say, is, you know, that's a, that's a little bit of a wild guy. Now do that in 1930s Moscow without papers, because it's Shabbos and he can't carry, he has no documentation, he has no ID, and he's walking visibly Jewish, a beard, a payas, a yarmulke, tzitzis, and all, all that would have to happen is you'd have to be stopped one time. You wouldn't even have, he wouldn't have identification. And, it's, it, he, he, and in those days, you know, when, when, when a Jew was stopped by the authorities, it wasn't a slap on the wrist. They could be disappeared. They could, you know, they never, never show, they would just never appear again. They would just take them away. Never know what happened. 
But this, this was his, this was Rabbi Yaina. He was above all of this. He was above, you, you would not think that he was living in Stalin's Moscow. But then he would come to shul, and he would daven a long, long, long time. He was a chassid, he would daven meditatively, he would spend hours on his prayers, and then took his own. After he finished davening, he'd spend all day davening. Toward the end of Shabbos, he'd finally make Kiddush, and he would find a fabrengen, he would say l'chayim, and he would fabreng in a very inspiring way, in a very fiery way. He would get everybody uplifted, and people would just forget that they were living under the conditions that, that they were living. So this, this Rabbi Yaina, he was a spiritualist, he was mystic, he was a little bit of a, a wild guy. I mean, just to be that oblivious to the conditions under which he was living and to be that openly Jewish and that dedicated, devoted, he was not what you would consider, you know, your conventional button-down type of guy. At the same time, at the same time, you should know that this Reb Yeina was a master organizer. A master organizer. First of all, he was in charge of underground chadarim, underground schools. And the amount of logistics that were involved. And of course, remember, there couldn't be a paper trail, so everything was memorized. So you're talking about somebody who had to run, I mean, imagine running a school, being an administrator of a school, and you, you forget about it, you don't have a computer, you don't have paperwork, and you don't have, because you, you can't create a paper trail, and everything is, is, is memorized, and you have to know who to trust, and everything is in code. And, every, and then beyond that, not only he was running the underground schools, he started to ru run an underground emigration system after World War II, what happened is, because the war front pushed eastward, a lot of Polish citizens ended up in Russia. So after World War II, the Russians said that the Polish citizens have to leave Russia, they have to go back to Poland. So it was easier to escape from Poland than from Russia. So what a lot of Jews did is they got the idea that if you could get a Polish passport, you know, that was basically an underground uh, forged, there's a system of forging Polish passports. If you get a, a Polish passport, then you could get out of Russia, they would, you know, deport you to Poland, and then from Poland it was easier, you could get to Western Europe and then to Israel or to America or wherever. So this Rebjena was one of the three chsidim who ran this system of creating the documentation and of running the, the Jews on these trains. Uh, the, t the town was called Lemberg. Lemberg's a border town. So to get the Jews out of Russia into Poland, and it was an incredibly involved amount of, uh, again, of logistics and planning. And this was Rebjena was overseeing this whole thing. So on the one hand, he's this spiritualist, this mystic, who's walking through Moscow like he doesn't even know what's going on around him. He's davening all day, he's saying l'chaim, he's fabreging the rest of the day. He's like, you know, not, not, a, not a practical guy. Very spiritual guy, very, what would you call it, uh, you know, uh, otherworldly guy. On the other hand, he's this master planner, coordinator. So, which... Yaina was the real Yaina. And, and, and the answer is, they were both the real Yaina. He was, he was a paradox. He was a study in contradiction. I'll tell you, 
Mendel Futafas, who was one of the other Sidim who was involved in that uh, f- f- uh, falsifying the passports to get Jews out of Russia, <clears throat> he told Rabiena that you got to go because the communists know that you're involved in this and this is very serious. You got to get out of here. And in fact, Reb Mendel gave him a ticket. He says, you are going on the next train. And he says, you know what? I was put in charge of taking care of the Tamimim, that means the students of the Lubavitch Yeshiva in Russia. And when the last one of the Tamimim leaves, then I leave. You know, like the captain goes down with the ship. So Reb Mendel gave him, gave, gave Reb a ticket. He says, you're going on the next train. He says, no, no, when everyone else is out, then I'll go out. I want you to know he never left. And, and, and he died childless. He never had children. There are many Lubavitcher families who have Yainas. They're all named after this Yaina. But he himself, he didn't have children. They executed him. One time, when he was in Lemberg, he was staying with a family. And he comes to the house where he was staying, and they told him, the KGB has been here for you. They know you're here, and they, they want to speak to you. So it's imminent. So he said, oh, I guess I got to get out of here. It was the morning. So he says, so uh, I'll eat breakfast, and then I'll daven, and then I'll leave. Think of the presence of mind that you know that you're doing something that you'll either be executed or sent to Siberia for the rest of your life for doing. You know the KGB has been to the place where you just walked through the door. The people tell you, hey, they were here for you, they're coming back. And to be able to say, okay, so I I, I guess I better leave, but first I'll eat breakfast, then I'll daven, then I'll get out of here, then I'll leave. You met, (laughs) if it were you or me, I don't know about you, but I know about me. I don't know what's more impressive, that he was able to daven or that he was able to eat. (laughs) Because I don't know if I could do either. But he ate, he davened, and then he left. And they didn't get him that time. They got him the next time. So this Rabbeinu, if I would ask you, was he a wild guy or was he a very settled, focused, very uh, orderly person? And the answer would be yes, he was both. He was both. So now if you, if you know who Reb Yena is and you understand that paradox between that reckless abandon, that spirituality on one hand, and that absolute calm, focus, steadiness, and how they were one package in Reb Yena. Now I'll tell you the story about the 10-year-old boy. Okay. So like I said, it was Moscow in the 1930s, it was Simchas Torah, and the joy of the Jewish people on Simchas Torah reaches its climax after all of the high holidays and the joyful days of Sukkot. Finally, you have Shmini Atzeres and Simchas Torah, where we take out the Torah from the, from the Ark and we, and we dance with it. And uh, what did they do? A wild thing, crazy thing, 1930s Russia. They went out of the shul into the street and they were dancing in the street. I mean, just think about the, the, the either the bravery or the foolishness, however you want to look at it. 
Rabbi Yaina then grabbed a stranger, and he didn't even know if he was Jewish or not, and started dancing with the stranger. This, this was, this was Rabbi Yaina and, and some Chastayra. Now, there was a little 10-year-old boy, I told you, named Shalom Levertov. I heard this story from his son, Rabbi Yossi, who is a shliach in Scottsdale, Arizona. So, little Shalom is 10 years old. And his mother bought him for Yom Tif a new suit. Now a new suit, even today in New York, a 10-year-old boy has a new suit. He feels good. He feels like Kamenchi. He's got a new suit. Now imagine 1930s Russia, the kind of poverty, the kind of scarcity that there was. To be able to get a new suit, that was a really big deal. That was a really big deal. And he loved this suit. And it had gold buttons on it, and it was, it was a beautiful suit. And he was very proud of the suit. He felt good. He felt like a mensch walking in the suit. And uh, Rabbi Yaina was outside, Simchas and he was dancing, and then he started getting everybody crazy with him, and he started saying to, uh, to the Chassidim one after the Machakula, Machakula, uh, somersault. Make a, make a somersault. Machakula, make a somersault. And then he saw the little boy, little 10-year-old boy, being very careful to keep his suit clean. There's something called a teachable moment, where you can't construct the situation, but if you're a master teacher, you can seize the opportunity when it arises. This moment was a teachable moment where Rabbi Yaina understood the chinuch, the education, that this 10-year-old Shalom was going to need in order to remain a proud Jew in the circumstances under which he was going to be, going to be living. He understood that for this boy, it was incredibly important, <coughs> excuse me, that he make that somersault, and if you understand, there were no dry cleaners in 1930s Moscow. To make that somersault, and that suit would never be the same again. The suit would never be the same again. And Abyeina turns to the little 10-year-old Shalom. Machakula! And all the chassidim are cheering, Machakula! What can you do? He had no choice. And he made the somersault. And that suit was never the same again. And neither was Little Shalom, he was never the same again. He had a teachable moment. At that moment, what, what did Rabbi Yena teach the 10-year-old boy? That sometimes Yiddishkeit requires that we do something crazy. Sometimes the most responsible thing is to be irresponsible. There's a saying Siddham have about a, a Mishnah in Pirkei Aves. It says uh, in the in chapter five of Pirkei Avos, it says uh, Yehuda ben Tema, one of the Tanoim, one of the sages of the Mishnah, said that as ponim legehenim, uveishis ponim leganeidin. As ponim means a brazen face, meaning audacity, chutzpah, someone with chutzpah. So the as ponim, the people with person with uh, chutzpah, with audacity, they go to. Gehenim, they go to purgatory. And the boishas panim, the shamefaced, the, the humble, the meek, they go to Gan Eden. 
So you can understand what the simple reading is. But Chassidim say like this. You twist it a little bit and say like this. To be a proud Jew in a Gehenim, like 1930s Moscow, Azponim Gehenim, only an Azponim, only someone with chutzpah can be a proud Jew when you're living in a, in a hellish situation. But if you're only a Baishas Panim, if you're meek, if you're timid, if you're a you know, goody two-shoes, then the only way you can keep your Judaism is if you're in a Gan Eden, if you're in a veritable paradise, if you're in a, you know, an easy place like Five Towns in 2019, then you know. <coughs> When we think of education, Chinuch, we generally, the default idea is discipline. You got to take the kid, kid's wild, you got to rein him in, you got to teach him how to be disciplined. That's part of Chinuch. One part of Chinuch is teaching children to channel their energy and be more focused. And that, that's, that's part of Chinuch. But just as much as that is part of Chinuch, you know what else, what else is part of Chinuch? And, and, and it needs more needs to be mentioned more often because it's so overlooked. The opposite, the opposite teaching. Teaching children how to get out of their box. Teaching children how to, how to break away and do something fearless, even reckless. That's also part of Chinuch. To teach the child who's a little bit of the wallflower, come out of your shell and, and, and explode onto the scene and, and be extroverted, not, not, not in a self-consumed way, but in a holy way, in a way that serves God, in the way the Jews have done throughout the ages when we had to overcome all types of challenges in order to be Jews. So just as much as it's part of the child's education to teach them how to rein it in and be more organized and more orderly and more focused, executive functioning, all that stuff, yes, yeah, but also vital part of Chinuch, vital part of education of the Jewish child, because it's a vital part of the personality of the Jew, is to have that other, that opposite part of the personality, which is wild and outgoing and risk-taking and adventurous and flighty and, and unstable in a good way. So now let's answer our question about the two Chanoichs. In Kabbalah, we have two concepts. We have toihu and tikkun. Toihu means chaos. Tikkun means rectification. In Kabbalah, they refer to two different models for creation. Toihu is where the energy in creation is ample, but the containers are uh, minimal. So there's a lot of energy, and it's, it can't be contained. And that model for creation actually was unsustainable, and there was a shattering of the vessels. And Kabbalah explains it as, as a part of the sort of the building process of, of world building, how, how, how Hashem made worlds. But the idea is that you have this, this very high level, very lofty level, where there's extremely powerful oirois, light, and, and thin or flimsy kalim, vessels. Powerful light, flimsy vessels. Tikkun is the opposite. Tikkun is sturdy kalim, nice, robust vessels, containers, and more dim uh, oirois. The lights are, are more dim, more settled. 
So which one are we supposed to emulate? Which one is supposed to be our focus? And you know, if we're asking a Jewish question, if we say, is it A or is it B? The answer is both, or C, or whatever. It all depends where you're coming from. Toihu needs to be tempered by Tikkun, and Tikkun needs to be tempered by Toihu. Just like wildness needs to be contained, sometimes the settled, orderly personality needs to be set free. And so you have to take each child, King Solomon, the wisest of all men, he said, educate the child, differentiate where the child is coming from. So there are children who need to learn more how to add more tikkun to their taihu, to give more order to their wild energy so that they can focus better. But then there are also children that need to be given more taihu to their tikkun. They need to be given energy and excitement and, and, and even a little bit of recklessness. And then there are how both of those personalities are present in all of us. So in other words, you have those who are a little bit more Kayan-like, the wild one who needs to be settled down. You have those who are a little bit more Shace-like, the settled one who needs to be made more wild. And then you have in all of us a little bit of Kayan and a little bit of Shace. So this is the lesson that the Torah tells us. Chanoich, the word Chanoich means Chinuch. Chanoich is Chinuch, is education. So how is it that Cain's Chanoich is the opposite of him? Cain is the crazy one. His son Chanoich is the city builder and the settled one. Sheis is the settled one, the Evan the foundation stone. And his Chanoich is the flighty one who disappears from the world. Because that's precisely the point. If you're coming from one extreme, then your Chanoich, your Chinuch, your education is to go to the other. And if you're at this extreme, then the reverse. And that's what we have to do for ourselves and for our children to identify how the tikkun needs taihu, and the taihu needs the tikkun. And if you'll be a master educator like a Reb Yena, who in himself contained that paradox, who had the wildness and the orderly focus at the same time, then you're able to, uh, to bring it out in others. Okay, so we'll see you next week, God willing.